Welcome back to Samsara Audio, a project of Samsara Diagnostics. Today we are talking with Gabe from Vivid Void. I first encountered Gabe, I think, um, back in January of this year. He's been kind of building an audience, taking off a little bit, launched a Substack, and I first noticed Gabe because of his uh, his good night posts. Actually, um, his every evening he posts a beautiful piece of art with the words "You are not inferior to anyone." Good night. I love you. See you in the morning. And I was really struck by that. I started to see it every evening. Twitter just served it up to me. And I realized, wow, I, I love that uh, Gabe is putting more loving kindness out into the Twitter the Twitter sphere and by extension, the world. Uh, Gabe, welcome. Uh, happy that you're here. And uh, thank you for wishing me good night for, uh, for half of the past year. Uh, where did you get the idea for those posts? I'm really curious. Um... Well, thanks for having me. I appreciate the invitation. Um, the first time I made one of those posts, I was working through uh, a pretty—I was working through a pretty difficult time in my life. Um, I had just gotten out of uh, an abusive romantic relationship that had um, that had caused me some cognitive damage, um, and so I was. Um, in treatment for PTSD and I was doing a lot of, a lot of work on sort of repairing my relationship with myself. And the first time I ever posted that, I just kind of posted it to myself. And this was, I think about two years ago now. Um, yeah, just about two years ago. And, and, you know, at the time I was a very small Twitter account or had a very small Twitter account. And, um, yeah, it was just, it was just a little reminder. I didn't realize it was two years ago. I, I, um, you must have grown quite a bit for me to just start showing up in my feed. Uh, clearly, other people needed to hear that too. Um, otherwise, I wouldn't be getting boosted. How, um, how much? How much have you grown over the past two years in terms of your following and like just thinking about your own project? I, I'll just be. I'll be frank. I have a. I have like a Twitter, um, like Chrome add-on that hides people's follower count for me. So I actually don't know how Good many followers you. you have or how many followers other people have. Um, I really like it. It just kind of equalizes everything. But um, uh, what kind of growth have you seen and, and how, how has that affected your work? I'd be stoked if you would send that extension over to me after this recording. Um, I, at the time that I started posting this, I think I had, I think I had about 500 followers. Now I have about 26,000. Um, a lot of that I think came from working through trauma in public. I, um, stopping short of, of oversharing details, but, um, but, but really discussing process, discussing, um, uh, cognitive changes, discussing emotional changes. Um, and I'm um, just being very open about what the healing process looked like. And I think very open about, um, uh, the very kind of ugly part of it. Um, and not, not, um, not flinching away from what that looks like. And, and, uh, you know, I, trauma is maybe one of the most overused, uh, terms we've got these days where it kind of seems like, 
uh, you know, it's, it's applied to, to any, any difficult emotion, um, you know, but, um, mm. properly understood, um, it's, um, you know, healing from it requires acknowledging and in many cases, uh, working through some, some truly threatening and difficult emotions, real deep hatred and real, real, um, real deep emotional pain. And, and I committed to doing that, um, in front of everyone so they could see what it really looked like and not just a sanitized version. And I think that really resonated with people, uh, as they were, as they were going through their own healing, maybe especially post pandemic. I think a lot of us were very introspective during that time. Yeah, we certainly were forced to be, um, Mm. the, the distance from other people too, kind of making you realize uh, how much you relied on those connections, how much you relied on kind of the social dance of things to bring yourself some sense of um, legibility to yourself. Mm. I'm I'm curious what you think about, because you brought up the concept of trauma and definitely that it is, it's, it's ubiquitous in how we've started to understand ourselves. There's definitely a critique of kind of the trauma framework that sees it very much as um, by in inscribing this wound into yourself, there's there's a way in which you're kind of ontologizing the the brokenness, you know. And I wonder how you think about that. Um, of like when you inscribe that and brokenness into yourself, it's almost kind of like a, it it becomes a new part of the identity. Um, I, I'm curious if you if you've engaged with that at all. I think that's a good. Um, I think that's a good way to think about it. I do, I do think it's a necessary reification. Hmm. Um, but it should be the first step in a process. Um, when trauma is still unconscious or when the effects of trauma are still unconscious, uh, it first needs to be made object. And, and once you can recognize it for what it is, and you can separate the moral judgments and understand it as nervous system damage, you can then begin to build a sense of self that's larger than what happened to you. Mm-hmm. And once you have a sense of self that can contain that, um, and you can integrate it into a new ego that relies on that as a source of meaning and strength, I think that's the appropriate treatment and i think that skilled practitioners are, are are aiming for that as treatment goals um but i think what ends up happening sort of with what i call therapy culture which isn't really like a technical term but it's kind of um you know therapy speak as it's used on mm-hmm. social media therapeutic accounts on tiktok etc cetera, etc cetera. Mm-hmm. um what happens is trauma gets reified as some kind of almost like an original sin like concept mm-hmm. that we all just have to live with and it's all just in us and and it explains what's wrong with us and maybe justifies why we're not taking responsibility yeah for ourselves um and that is it as far as i'm concerned that's uh, that it's worse than a perversion of the original concept it's because it, it, it grounds people in in the reification and it makes something static that that ultimately to heal needs to be needs to be restored to fluidity it needs to be it needs to be it needs to have its temporality restored um to heal i i wonder how you think about healing i'm i, I write about this a lot because I, I really 
I kind of come at this from a psychoanalytic perspective. And so I definitely love what you're saying about bringing something that is unconscious to make it conscious. I wonder, how do you think about health? Do you think about it as a state of restoring or do you think about it as a way of like, we never, never fully being able to return necessarily to the undamaged system, but rather developing something new with the, with the damage that, that is there in the system. Yeah, I, I think that's, I think that's a, a the right way to, to put it. I, there's, you know, there, it's not, it's hardly groundbreaking to say that people desire that kind of return to innocence or, or mm-hmm. return to youth. Um, but there's a flaming sword at the gate of the garden of Eden, right? You don't get to yeah. go back. Um, yeah. I don't know, you know, um, it's, it's, the, I think the good news is mental health isn't about being unblemished or, or, or returning to innocence. You know, that's the, the fetishization of innocence is a is totally unfit thing for an adult to have. And, and uh, well, I mean, you know, outside of, outside of a safe ritual container um, because it's going to cause far more problems than, than it's worth. Um, I, I think what healing looks like is, is recognizing the is I I think recognizing the changing nature of, of all things. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think as soon as you reify something, turn it into um, well, you know, make an idol of it in a sense. Whether that's whether that's for worship or or um, or to be the synagogue that you never set foot in, um, you've made something permanent of something that's supposed to change and it's supposed to flow and it's supposed to it's supposed to just move on. Uh, and I think that mental health, such as it is, is, is um, really an appropriate understanding of, of the, the temporariness of things, the impermanence of things, um, and not over-ascribing meaning or, or attempting to, to cling or aver to things that are just going to go on their own. Yeah, I love that you brought up kind of the concept of ego there and and reification. It's like the goal is to return to life rather than to and to get out of the fantasy that we have retreated into as a yes. way of um, being able to navigate the pain. Um, I've I've written a little bit about I kind of I kind of see the concept of ego and idol in Jewish and Christian scripture as being very closely related. Um yeah, there, there's this the, the ego that we set up this this idea of self, at least in my kind of reading, is this idol that we begin to worship and we we're willing to make sacrifices to it, and that's how we get into these self destructive cycles. Um, I'm wondering uh, th- this this concept of of worship and religious traditions brings me to one of my other questions that your work seems to be very principally eclectic and uh, unsystematic intentionally, which I I absolutely I love that. I appreciate that. I'm I'm wondering about how you came to that, how you came to that place, because you do talk about this losing your desire for knowledge in your work. And uh, what what have been kind of the primary influences in the in the journey that you've been on? Um, I think I usually start talking, I usually address this conversation 
or I address this topic when I, when I think about it or when it comes up. Typically start by talking about my mentor. My mentor mm-hmm. was, a, was a psychotherapist. He was my therapist for about two years. I worked through a, a developmental issue with him and then said, I'll see you later. And then six months later, came back and I said, look, I can't stop thinking about this. I'm fascinated by it. Um, but I don't want therapy. I want to seek enlightenment. Can you help me? And he was like, I don't know. But, but he, but he was smiling when he said it, you know, he was, he was also, yeah, exactly. Right. He was, he was a Zen Roshi as well as a, as a therapist. Um, and so we kind of switched modes and, um, but I think something that's important that I, that I want to add in before I start talking about this guy is that I, I initially went to the Evergreen State College to study literary theory when I was in my early 20s. And that meant sort of diving straight to the heart of postmodernity. Yeah. Um, and my professors were very good, but they were, they were, uh, they did not understand the folly of introducing people to emptiness before they're ready for mm. it. Yes. Oh and my so, gosh. I'd love that you say that. Oh, it's really important. You know, it's it, in the internet age, nothing can be occulted properly. Um, maybe yes. new things maybe can be occulted, but like there's no way to stop a determined student or determined research or whoever from getting to ideas that once were like very carefully guarded for, for good reason. Yes. Emptiness is one of these, Mm -hmm. um, at least practical teachings of it, because for a young person in their early twenties to sort of come face to face with, with the vast meaninglessness of it all, they can't help but conclude that they know the meaning of meaninglessness and that's nihilism. Yes, they've been introduced to the poison too soon. Yeah, they don't have the framework to be able to handle it and to and to and to uh, to, rec- to recognize that like, well, they're they're too young. To, I was too young to abandon all concept at twenty three. Mm-hmm. Right? It just wasn't. It's like that's the appropriate thing to do when you're standing in front of of you know sort of the ultimate negation is to be like ah like clearly none of this works. And yes. then sort of acknowledge your own humility and, and that it, that can be kind of a wonderful thing, but it's not for a young ego. It's a very difficult thing. It hasn't been through enough harrowing yet. And, and so that actually, that actually precipitated a pretty long existential crisis for me. That was very difficult. Um, and, and I sort of realized by, by working with my mentor that emptiness is path dependent or your experience of emptiness is path dependent. It's like the the way at which you arrive at the um, at the understanding of of space and potentiality and God and all of that really it really matters you know like if you try to get there sort of uh, you know via positiva via study of literature or sort of like the Borgesian method um, you know and you're not strong enough to do it it'll really fuck you up. Um, and I've, I was very glad for the chance. What my mentor really helped me do was like come back to it, but really rediscover it with my faculties, um, not thinking with with any other systems. And in fact, he was he was extremely insistent that any any labeled thought, any systematic thought, and this included Buddhism, 
um, was insufficient. So he didn't want me even using Buddhist terminology for phenomena that I was describing or that I was experiencing in meditation. He wanted me to come up with my own terminology. He wanted me to come up with my own systems um, that were only based on my experience of things. And this, of course, was very slow, difficult work. Um, he, he, he recommended against me reading anything about meditation. I didn't read anything about it for the first five years that, that I did it. Um, I, there was a book that I got called drawing on the right side of the brain that I think was like a huge help to me in meditation. And that, so that's still the only book that I'll recommend to somebody who's just starting out. Um, but I, I, by by challenging me not to build not not to not to sort of slip into the easy grooves of a a well thought out system he what he did is he blocked me from from gaming my way to something and and fooling myself into believing i had an understanding of something that i did not um, and, and of course that was the, maybe the most frustrating five years of my life, but it's, it was extraordinarily beneficial. So, uh, what I'm, what I'm hearing, just kind of piecing things together, and this is great. Thank you so much for sharing. I'm, I'm hearing that you kind of got wrecked in, in college a little bit by, uh, getting introduced to emptiness too soon. Um, and then you ended up having a lot of problems from that. Like, what, what would you say were the negative effects in your life of being introduced to that, that emptiness prematurely? I think that that plus some problems that I had growing up led me to foreclose on um, an identity too soon. And so I was living as though I had transcended or I was behaving as though I had transcended the need for identity. But all I was doing was um, a kind of like pathological self-abnegation, even when I even even in in times when it would be totally normal and natural for a human being to stand up for oneself. I was trying to I was trying to pretend as though my as though reality could be totally reshaped without the conditions of my identity having anything to do with it. Um, and, and that, that was not the idea of building a self larger than my identity. That was me refusing to face the facts of my identity, uh, or to face the, the social construction and the social realities of it. So like what I needed to do was instead of, instead of sort of positing a kind of utopian world where we should not, no one should have to uh, be constrained by their identity. Um, what I needed to do was go through the conventional understanding of identity to the other side, which is that we all have these things that uh, are going to follow us around. People are going to, people are going to, are always going to expect certain things of me being male, they're always going to expect certain things of me, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. These things don't have to be intolerable to me. I can just let other people be other people. I don't have to control it. I don't have to change the world. I'm not the general manager of the universe. And, 
and then sort of going beyond that, I could have a self that contained an identity. So I could have maleness, and I could allow for the manipulation of that when it was useful for me, and not, and not you know, to be, uh, you know, something that exists sort of like outside of me that I have to mediate all of my interactions uh, with the world through this concept. It was like it became a tool for me to use. Um, and I think once I had that understanding, then then the question becomes like, well, if I am not this, what am I? And then that's where stuff started to get really weird. When you started to ask, what am I, kind of from that place of emptiness, where did you start to look? Um... The first time I um, discovered the mental motion of identification, I tried it on awareness, and it was a kind of like, I don't know how to, you can't describe it, it's a mental motion. Once I sort of experienced <laughs> being, you know what I mean, once I experienced being the field, in which things were happening, I tried to do the same motion and experience whatever was aware of the field. And I had this like physical thing happen and tears started leaking out of my eyes and, I, and, and something went, Oh, I can't do that. That's not available to me. There's, that's like a veil. Like I hit it. Um, and that was a, that was a lovely experience. It was, it was something that made me realize, like, this is a place that concepts totally fail. This is like, this is a place that words will never, never get me. And the point at which those concepts broke down was. Um, what is aware trying, of awareness? Yes. What is aware of awareness? That was what I was trying to articulate. Okay. Hmm. How does this relate to the concept of spirit and the spiritual? Um, it, it seems like you you talk about um, mystical, the mystics, the almanac is the name of your work, um, mm. and you reference the concept of the mystical, the unfathomable frequently. I'm wondering, what what are you saying when you use the word spiritual? What do, what do you mean? Um, with, I mean, sort of with the caveat that every, everything I'm going to say right now is going to fail. Probably the closest thing I can think of to a good definition of the spiritual is a kind of, is the metaphysical precondition of existence. Um... I don't pretend to understand it as things, as things, um, as phenomena arise and then persist and then pass away. They, they arise and persist and pass away according to some sort of, some sort of metaphysical principle that seems to be unique to each object. And the, the thing that I can think of is that, the, the way that I experience that is, is, um, this is, this is God's equanimity. 
there's a kind of shape to the unconditional space that God gives each object in existence, everything in existence. And that unique shape of the equanimity is, is the unique shape of, of, of love for each thing is what you may as well call a soul. So let me see if I can articulate what you're saying. There's um, God has his God gives every object a space for it to inhabit, and it and to operate and kind of a path that it moves through, and it kind of has the shape of self-giving. Um, I heard love, and I thought kind of self-giving, um, kind of uh, because if, for things to appear, they have to give themselves to me in a sense. Of course, they can't give all of themselves to me. Um, they can only give themselves to me insofar as I'm able to receive them. Um, I'm wondering if you could go more into the concept of the unconditioned parameters of experience. I might have messed up what you said there, but I'm trying to think about, is it like, is is that like Kant's like transcendental schema of like there's kind of transcendental categories that make experience possible, kind of like the shape of experience that you can't derive from experience, but that is things like time and space, for instance. We don't have experiences outside of time and space. They're the dimensions that the mind experiences experience within. It's the possibility of the possibility of experience. Is this is this getting at what you're saying or is it different? Sorts, I, I think, so I think, I, I wish I could tell you that I was very well acquainted with, with either philosophy or religion, but I'm not, I'm a pretty nice, I mean, I, better now in the last couple of years, like having good company on, on Twitter and learning a lot from people, but I'm a pretty naive meditator and I can kind of only talk about what I, what I feel like I've, I, I've perceived I wouldn't say that the objects are given from God. I would say that an object exists when God withdraws from it, but doesn't not doesn't withdraw from it in the sense of is separate from it, but withdraws from it in the sense of um, holds loving space, like a self abnegation. Um, and the shape of that, for whatever reason, and maybe this is something that Kant is pointing to. Um, you know, the, the shape is, um, and it's in, and it's in the, it's in the shape of the, of, of the space that God's holding for it. Um, that's, that's what I would, that's how I would. Uh, describe that the the fact that that things such as they are seem to have um regular categorical shapes is not it's not something i can speak to that i know very Mm -hmm. much about so i mean what i'm hearing is that for there to be anything there has to first be a void and God creates that void through his own absencing. And it's only in that void that objects emerge, that there could be anything that exists. Yes. Okay. I think that's a fair, I think that's fair. I, the, the, 
the void is not God, but there's no way yeah. for us to understand mm -hmm. God. The best way for us to understand God is, is void. Because where we appear via, is, via not, is not where he is. Um, um, because all things come from it and return to it. Mm -hmm. And are and are and are just soaked with love. I think I'm, but I'm the, trying but to. But the void is not God. There's no way for us to even talk about that. Yeah. I'm I'm trying to I'm trying to wrestle with this like if if the void is not God and God must withdraw for the for to create the void it's it's not clear to me what like how does he leave his right, again I'm using he um how does God leave um any sort of trace or characteristic to that void like if 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 God withdraws to create a void, how is there, how can love define the void? Wouldn't that mean it's not a void or God would not have fully withdrawn? Maybe I'm, I, I think, I think are these questions making sense. Yeah. Yeah. No, it, it makes sense. I, I would say I, I, I do not. So maybe there's something that, that, uh, that is, that is outside of a sort of platonic understanding of a con like there's I don't believe that there's a concept that can map onto this one-to-one -one. so um and and maybe I'm maybe I'm not understanding where um where you're coming from on this if it the best way for us to understand God is void and so if we're going to represent a, a system which is always going to be short and it's always going to be incomplete and it's, and it's not and is, is itself, you know, um, we should never mistake for the thing itself. Then, then understanding void as God is the best we can do because it's, it's the negation of all concept. And, and ultimately it's, it's that from which, you know, everything arises and everything passes away or everything passes back into, but that's only because that's what the mind can perceive. And what God actually is, is beyond the metaphor of the mind to represent. But, but I believe that the best metaphor for God is void. So, so, so what I believe an object is or existence is, is void withdrawing from an object. And in that space, that negative space from which it's withdrawn, it exists the object and and that space is love then in this case i used self-giving to describe that love i'm wondering would you describe that love in a different way what what, what so and again probably because, the right. same thing by the by a different motion i would say it's self-withdrawing <laughs> because i would say that i would say that got like before like um god is god is perfect unity and um and as such it, there is complete void 
when God is in perfect unity, but when God withdraws, um, then creation comes into mm-hmm. comes into being. But I would say we're saying essentially the same thing, where where you could construe it as an act of God giving, and I'm saying the mechanic perhaps by which He gives is by withdrawing in a shape. Yeah, I've. For what it's worth, I've been talking about the object giving itself, not necessarily God giving himself uh, as oh. the object or through the object. I've been talking about okay. the object is self-giving. Um, the object is self-giving. Like the object gives itself to me. Um, and mm-hmm. that to me seems like the love because mm-hmm. it's it's basically the object. The object is just this pure generosity of of life um, that I can mm. receive with thankfulness and with kind of like an open hand. If I grasp too tightly, I'm going to kill it. And there's a sense in which it has manifold ways it could give itself to me um, and to others. Unrestricted generosity. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. that's like the object is this unrestricted generosity to, yes. that we can receive. Yes. Yeah, it's beautiful. I, uh, it's really beautiful. I don't know if you've read um, Nishitani Keiji. Uh, he has a book called Religion and Nothingness. He is a uh, he's a part of the Kyoto School, uh, a school of Zen philosophers who mm-hmm. studied under Martin Heidegger. In in the no shit, I didn't even know it, that existed. I, I just read Byung-Chul Han, or I guess I haven't got to the end. Does he talk about them yet in there? I don't know if Byung-Chul Han talks anyway, sorry, about you. the on. Kyoto School. No, you're fine. Uh, Byung-Chul, is, he's great. Um, but uh, I recommend I recommend picking up Nishitani's book, Religion and Nothingness. I think you'll really like it. I think it'll really resonate with your style. Um, and he, I mean, he, he's a Zen Buddhist, but he's trying to wrestle with the European tradition of philosophy. So he's explicitly engaging thinkers like Nietzsche, Sartre, Heidegger, even Aristotle in some places, and he's trying to mobilize Sunyata in kind of an like religious existentialism sort of. And he he talks about how everything how everything shares a home ground, about how everything is in everything else yes. by not being itself. So it's it's this idea it's 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 this idea somehow that like the the fire and I, we can experience one another, but not exactly as we are. But we can still experience ourselves because we we share this home ground together. And that what the fire is to me is not what the fire is in itself, but also what I am to the fire is not what I am in myself. But somehow we share, we're, we're able to share that home ground together and to be in each other. Um, and of course, he's trying to empty emptiness and and figure out how to kind of mobilize that in a way that's actionable. Uh, but kind of what you're saying though is making me think about this um, this the need to open space where objects can give each other give themselves to each other uh, while both being themselves and by not being themselves. because um, the fire we experience is not the fire, it's the fire that is that burns my hand you know like the fire he says fire doesn't burn itself 
That's the, mm-hmm. the that's the definition of fire. So fire is itself by not being itself. Because to me, fire is what burns, but fire doesn't burn itself. So there's something really interesting going on there. Um, I'm not sure what you think about that, though. I think it's beautiful. Um, there's something really there's something really interesting. Well, to me, what that suggests is that is that understanding a, a self or understanding an essence uh, as an object mm-hmm. um, is is incomplete, and it's and understanding it as a process is um, helps us get there. If you know that the fire is a is a is a burning, and the mechanism by which you experience this process is selfing. Um, then, then, then the appearance of things takes on a different quality, takes on a different character. Yeah, I really think that we have a tendency to posit objects as primary and mm-hmm. relations as secondary. Mm-hmm. But it seems that that is really not how things operate. Relations are actually primary. And it is only through the operation of relations that the objects in the relation actually emerge as distinct objects. It's, it is, it doesn't it it the the rationalist mind does not like that, mm-hmm. but the rationalist mind also can't close the loop on its own reflection if you if you start from objects, and I think that just shows the primacy of relations in in life, in thinking the world and in interacting. I think that's wonderfully said. Uh, there's a, there's a writer um, sort of before, before DT Suzuki and, and um, other Buddhists came to the West. If you wanted to learn about uh, meditation, you went to a, an English writer named Evelyn Underhill. Hmm. And she wrote, she wrote three books. Um, and one of them is called practical mysticism. And she sort of talks about the, the, the reality under reality or, or we're perceiving the truth of things. And she never comes out and just says it like this because we have the benefit of, of Buddhism and, and, um, you know, the educational resources available to us in the 21st century. But what she's essentially describing is that you, you, you sit and you stare at the wall until you recognize that the world is, is relations first and objects second. Mm-hmm. And once, and once that happens, you, what she says is you begin to be a human being. Um, mm. Because you're no longer a human, right? You're a being. Um, I'm, I'm always wary of systems that divide people into the human and the not human. And, and Mm -hmm. of course, um, but I love the idea of coming to understand yourself as a being is sort of the beginning of, of mystical wisdom. I'm we're kind of running coming up against 40 minutes here, which is where I said, I want to cut things off. So I kind of want to bring things to a close here, but I need to ask you, obviously as I'm bringing things to a close, I have to ask you a huge question um, and then not adequately address it. I, <laughs> I'm, I'm a Christian. And so one of the like 
one of the 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 two images that stand out to me and have been most helpful is the Trinity and the death of Christ. And in those, I see I see in the Trinity this move to to posit relationality and love as the foundation of who God is, not just as a solitary monad, but as a community of love, first and foremost, is who he is. And then also to see God as also lacking, who can die on a cross and who can take on, who can take emptiness upon himself, who can take on finitude and limits and even death and and to carry that into himself and, and carry it forward into an even greater fullness of life that that the fullness of life is not this absence of death not even the negation of death but it's this transversal where where death is a important part of what it is to be alive mm, and he's taking thing. that into himself so i'm wondering what you what do you make of of christians christian images like that and whether you do you find them helpful? Are there aspects of them that you find to be unhelpful? Um, yeah, I want I want to get your take before we kind of bring things to a close here. Sure. I so I I grew up Catholic. I grew up actually trad Catholic. My parents were were pretty fundamentalist, and I grew up in a religious community called um, City of God, which is. Um, the same community that the Supreme Court Justice Amy Coney Barrett comes from, although she's a little older than me, so I didn't know her. Mm-hmm. Um, I like like many kids from fundamentalist families. I left pretty early, um, when I was about twenty, and um, and did a lot of searching and a lot of seeking, and and um. Once I overcame sort of some of my some of my problems, certainly some developmental troubles that I had, I I was able to see the Christian faith, um, sort of without the without the uh, simplicity of child's teachings or the sort of reflexive antagonism of like adolescent atheism, mm-hmm. uh, and and really come to appreciate the depth and beauty of it. Um, I've been saying for a while, well, I'm not really answering your question. I've, I've been saying for a while that Christian contemplative traditions are better um, for Western people. The, the metaphors are more apt. Um, they're closer to the kind of, the kind of, um, I, you know, world like the ground the worldview ground of of most people's identities mm-hmm. um and i i think that they're more useful than using than using um buddhist metaphors i just think that the buddhist metaphors are succeeding right now because of the um huge amount of self-hatred that we see in the west um and i think if we had less of that i think there'd be people who'd be a lot more amenable to to um christian forms of, of contemplation um uh that said um i believe that the experience what i think of as um now that i now think of as impermanence um which which f- the physical experience of that is is as that which 
um, comforts. It's as it's that it's that which it's 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 a it's a wonderful thing, you know, when you when joy arises in meditation or or contemplation, it lasts much longer than than negative feelings and anger or, or sadness. Um, but when when difficult sensations do come up, the physical experience of that, just staying with them, is that they they change and they they become become new shapes. They become new feelings. They come with different different qualities of thought, and and ultimately they kind of break up and they kind of um, I don't know, foam off. If I don't, maybe that's the best way to. Or they, I, maybe sublimation is is mm-hmm. they kind of burn off into smoke, and that burning off is a is a such a comfort. And I I don't know another way. I, I mean, to me that seems so obvious that that's the Holy Spirit of Christianity. Mm. That, that that's that's a that's such a manifestation of God's love. Carrying those things it away is carrying those things away. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. In a way like the, the, yeah, I think that's the right, I think that's the right way to put it. I, I, the, the, the resonance of, of the story of Jesus, the resonance of, of, Christian theology um, is something I'd love to learn more about. And I'm actually, I'm, mm. I'm grateful to be more acquainted with your work now, having, having read a few of your articles and things before we started this podcast I, with luck, I'll be able to learn more about it through what you've written and your, your project that you've got going on here. Thanks Gabe. Yeah. This, I, I am trying to figure out like what is, what is that resonance um, that Christianity can have for folks that isn't this, um, it's not the the, uh, the therapism of mental health. It's not this unlimited positivity mm-hmm. and, you know, you just need to develop a, a better ego and, and that sort of thing. It, it, it really, it engages with emptiness. It engages with lack, engages with suffering and the hard things. Um, how, how can we, how can we mobilize that in symbols and in actions that um, that can that can really form a life? Mm-hmm. Well, thank you, Gabe. May, this has been a pleasure. Yeah. May it Carve be out so. just a little bit of time uh, to contemplate the deep things and just be present. Uh, where uh, where can people find your work if they want to find out more? Well, best place to find me is on Twitter.com. If you just search for Vivid Void, um, there'll be a crazy-eyed tiger will pop up. <laughs> That's me. Yep. Um, I am writing on Substack. Um, I, things are a little bit slower than they have been um, for, a, for a bunch of different reasons, but I'll have some essays coming out um, there in uh, August of this year, 2023. So um, that's, a, that's a place to come looking for it, too. Awesome. Well, I'll keep an eye out for that as well. Uh, Thanks for being here, Gabe. This has been another episode of Samsar Audio. Thank you for listening. Really appreciate your time and hope that this was uh, enlightening, beneficial for you. 
if you would like this video and follow my channel, I'd really appreciate it. And you can always check out my newsletter, Samsara Diagnostics at samsara.clinic. Thank you and have a wonderful rest of your day.